You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 114, for Monday the 30th of April 2018. My guest today is Gurbir Singh, the publisher of the Indian Space Programme, India's incredible journey from the third world towards the first, and the author of Yuri Gagarin in London and Manchester, which was published in 2011 to mark the 50th anniversary of humanity's first journey into space. A former college lecturer, Gubir is now working in the information security sector. He has a science and an arts degree, and once keen on flying, he holds a private pilot's license for the UK, US and Australia. Gubir was one of the 13,000 unsuccessful applicants responding to the 1989 advert Astronaut Wanted, No Experience Necessary to become the first British astronaut. This was the role for which Helen Sharman was eventually selected and flew on the Soviet space station Mir in 1991. Born in India, Gurbir has been living in the UK since 1966, except for one year in Australia. We met some time ago at an Amazon event in Manchester, and Gurbir has been a long-time listener to this podcast. When we chatted for the show, I started by asking him where his love of the stars and space had begun. It's something that I've had since childhood, and I'm, I insist that everybody has it at childhood, and I just hung, hung on to it. When I was younger, I used to uh, make telescopes and uh, actually do some observing. Um, nowadays, when it's clear, it's cold, and I don't like the cold, so uh, I don't do as much observing these days, so it's more reading and writing. Now that's interesting because it sounds like space for you is not Flash Gordon and Dan Dare as it was for me, but it's looking at the stars, you know, the constellations, the planets and all that sort of stuff, the more scientific side of it, I guess. That's, that's true. I am more of a, a science-orientated guy. I did study science for a while. Um, the, However... Not only have I got an interest in science fiction, just like everybody else in Star Trek and Star Wars and so on, but actually there's a, a much greater connection between science and science fiction, especially when it comes to um, space. Most of the people who you've heard of or have been involved in space got their initial motivations from reading science fiction. Um, I don't know if you've heard of a, a German rocket scientist called Werner von Braun. I can't say uh, that I have, no. But <laughs> 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 well, he's the, uh, the guy behind the uh, German V1 and V2s during the Second World War. Mm. And after the war, he, um, should we say, was acquired by the Americans and he went on to develop the uh, rocket engines that took the Apollo spacecraft to the, to the moon um, and he along with many other scientists uh, were motivated by the writings in the early days by Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and even in modern times just about every astronaut interview I uh, come across they usually have some interest in being Trekkies or being involved in uh, uh, reading, indeed writing, science fiction. 
Now, you um, have been living in the UK since 1966, so you and I are gentlemen of a certain age. So I, I'm just wondering what your science fiction influences were um, from a sort of creative sci-fi point of view. What were you watching and reading that inspired you? Well, I, I watched Star Trek, the original uh, series, uh, with uh, William Shatner and Captain Kirk. Um, these... Uh, uh, I think my motivation really came from reading science fiction. I read a lot of uh, Asimov and uh, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, and I think it was the – I don't know. There's something about – this is going back to the 70s and uh, early 80s. In those days, the special effects that we have today were nowhere near uh, um, what uh, most cinema go- goers today will see. So I think by reading science fiction – and being away from all the uh, glitz of the visual uh, visual effects, somehow reading the science fiction, I found much more uh, inspiring than than watching it. That's a really interesting point, actually, because there was a point or a, uh, in the nineteen, I think it must have been the eighties, late seventies, eighties, when you had things like Buck Rogers, um, and, and frankly, it was just a joke. That you know, the kind of tech was just a joke, and the special effects were just a joke. So um, that's a really good point that you make there about actually you don't need special effects in your imagination. You create them yourself. And that's what intrigues me about writers, like especially like you, who essentially um, create a whole world and put it on paper, and that uh, has its origins inside your head. So the question I then have to ask you is, today on this interview we're talking about non-fiction, and I'm just wondering whether there is some fiction sort of stirring away in there anywhere are you definitely a non-fiction kind of guy <laughs> oh, i'm definitely a non-fiction kind of guy my writing um um is motivated by the need to read the kind of books which uh, in both cases i've written two books uh, i if these books that I've written existed, I wouldn't have had to write them. So it's very selfish, but um, um, it, it was just solving a particular need in uh, in writing the books. Um, the writing was actually, in some ways, um, a, a side effect. Uh, I just wanted to know about, in the case of my first book, what the very the world's first cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin, uh, did when he came to the UK back in 1961. And there was no book that existed that explained why he came, what he did when he came, who he met. And that's the motivation behind writing that. But it also, I suppose, it was triggered by something specific. Um, the In his case, Yuri Gagarin was uh, invited to the UK to Manchester, which is my hometown now um, and it was he was invited by the amalgamated union of uh, foundry workers and by chance their their headquarters in 1961 was in an area of Manchester where I grew up so when I discovered that and that was in 2010 I'd been walking past this building which uh, hosted his visit and I couldn't find anything to read about uh, what uh, went on so I did some research and then realized that actually it's going to be the 50th anniversary the following year and so I just took on uh, an interesting personal project to research and write the book and in the case of the second book the Indian Space Program again there isn't uh, it's not a 
certainly not a comprehensive book, but it's quite a detailed piece of work. That kind of coverage I don't think exists in any other uh, single book that uh, talks about the Indian space program. Now, before we, we dive into how the, the, the books were written, how you researched them and all of that, um, you were a former college lecturer. So you come from an academic background. Uh, you know, you're kind of used to doing this sort of academic, um, you know, diligence and, and research and, and referencing things. Am I right in saying that? Well, that's true. Um, although, as I say, up until about 2010, uh, that doing that kind of thing was just work. Uh, however... Now that I've got into it, it's actually quite fascinating. And that's one of the, uh, apart from meeting individuals who were involved in the events that I'm looking at, doing the research, going to the archives and the libraries is one of the most uh, uh, satisfying activities that uh, is associated with writing books. Well, you've obviously found your thing. Your, your degree was science and arts. Now, Usually, I wouldn't think those things go together. They they seem to me to take different parts of the brain. So, so when you did a science and arts degree, what 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 did that involve? Well, that's funny that actually other people have commented on that. Um, I, <laughs> sounds a bit pompous, but I have two degrees. Once. Uh, um, uh, a BSc and the other is a BA and just looking at those that you look and you think well uh, it's science uh, a Bachelor of Science you do science which is true but the BA came from the Open University and at that time they didn't do any BSCs only BAs actually although it's an arts degree I did mostly physics maths and science Oh, so you're obviously you're obviously that way inclined then. By by which I mean, you know, you like the you like the academic, you like the facts, you like the tangible. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's true. But actually, uh, again, I think over the last decade or so, um, or maybe more, uh, I've really got into history. So although um, the, I'm interested in the history of science and how that's evolved, that in itself really is not scientific. It's just seeing how people, communities, and indeed nations are affected and how we all live together and the quality of lives that uh, science and technology enables uh, us to have in the 21st century. So it's not... And the area that fascinates me uh, of history is not um, open to the same scientific rigor as other aspects of science that I'm interested in. And over the last uh, few years, that interest in history has grown. Now, something that I discovered that fascinated me when I was prowling around researching it is that you fly. You've got a private pilot's license. Gabir, that's so cool. You didn't tell me that. (laughs) How did that come about? Well, I uh, uh, this is back in the 1980s. I uh, was um, uh, given a small trip by somebody I know who took me into a light aircraft and uh, a short flight over uh, from Blackpool Airport. And it was a light aircraft, and I really enjoyed the flight, even though <laughs> it was a bit uh, um, bumpy, the particular flight. But he was, he's now a commercial pilot, obviously in very safe hands. And I got the interest that uh, I followed up, and I initially started to learn to fly here in the UK at uh, Barton Aerodrome. It's in, near Manchester. And, of course, being uh, Manchester... It rained a lot, so I never did manage to get all the hours booked 
to actually fly because the weather interrupted. Then I moved to, and in those days you could, I'm talking about the early 1990s, late 1980s. Uh, then I did some flying, this is uh, private pilots, so small light aircraft at Manchester International uh, Airport. Now, no <laughs> light aircraft are allowed there these days, but initially my training involved the then single runway that was there. But again, it was still Manchester, weather interrupted, and I was very keen to get uh, uh, to complete my 40 hours before I could go solo. And I, in the end, went to Florida. Um, I was there for a whole month, did uh, usually two hours flying every day, an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, and thunderstorms conveniently came in during the day. Uh, so it was very easy to get to the level of experience I needed of airtime and qualifying the uh, doing all the tests and qualifying. So that was very, uh, very interesting and enjoyable, particularly flying in Florida. And do you still fly? No, uh, I haven't flown for quite a while, although back in 1994, uh, the whole of 1994, I spent, I was still teaching at the time, in Tasmania. And uh, when I was there, I joined a local club, and that's really where I did my sort of pleasure flying, so to speak. I had to requalify to fly in, in Australia, so I have an Australian um, pilot's license as well. After completing my flying license, I did some uh, pleasure flying, so to speak in Tasmania where I happened to spend a year uh, the whole of 1994 and that was really the um, best aspect of it and I haven't really flown since. That, that's super cool so there's always been a touch of the Flash Gordon in you I mean you seem to be the closer you get to the skies and the stars the happier you seem to be is that is that a correct observation? <laughs> well I suppose uh, and this is uh, going back about uh, 20, 30 years, yeah, uh, and and uh, as part of uh, the uh, my education and the experience in aviation, as little as it was, and I also had some foreign language uh, experience, uh, funnily enough, that was sufficient for me to essentially tick all the boxes when a particular job came uh, available. Uh, you might not remember this, but back in the late 80s, there was an advert uh, which said, astronauts wanted no experience necessary i don't know if you remember that paul i mean, well, i was trying to remember it but um this is a brilliant story um i'm just trying to think how old was i in 1989 old, old enough wasn't i to go to space <laughs> that, that's sure. <laughs> well this advert came out of uh, uh, in england in uk and of course it was the the, the funny part was that uh, there weren't any british astronauts so there could not be anybody with experience and um, the, uh, they were looking for an astronaut to fly aboard the um, then Soviet space station, Mir. And it was not a government-run thing. It was a private venture. And in the end, um, Helen Sharman from the UK went up and spent um, a, a couple of weeks there in uh, in space, in Mir. And that's the job that I did apply for. Uh, there was a long list and a short list. I got on to neither, so I just fell at the very first hurdle. But oh, at no. least I ticked all the boxes. <laughs> I hope you've got a letter, have you? Uh, that's A letter of rejection saying, thank you, but no thank you. Did you at least get that? No, I didn't, unfortunately. The And I think if I, even if I had, I probably wouldn't have been able to keep it up. Not as 
organizers as you are possibly <laughs> oh you'd have had to frame that that, that i mean but e- even just going for it it's like you know um when i was a student i remember photographing my job application for blue peter it's like one of those life experiences isn't it when you you, you do something just uh, incredible on the off chance that you just might uh, get it so what 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 were the um what were those kind of prerequisites good bit i mean you know you were a pilot obviously but who, who were they looking for can you remember well they they didn't really know it was such a, a new venture for everybody um and uh, uh, just going back to your previous example i i did uh, uh, you you might remember a bbc journalist called reg turnell do you remember him he was the aviation correspondent and he covered the uh, concord uh, when it was uh, went from um, being a development and into operation and i went to meet reg turnell because he after um, that work he was uh, commissioned to be the bbc um, space Correspondent, and he based himself in uh, in Florida when the Apollo space program was active. So he met most of the astronauts um, who went to the moon. In fact, he probably met all of them. And he uh, happened to be in Moscow just after Yuri Gagarin uh, landed and he was giving his very first uh, press conference. And I went to meet Reg at his home in Kent, and he. Um, uh, gave me a check for a, a clip that I managed to find for him and on, online, with, uh, which was actually a video recording, originally Cine, but a video recording of that press conference online, and he couldn't figure out how to pay for it. So I paid for it, and he insisted on giving me a check. And I kept that check, and I've still got that check somewhere. Oh, well, fantastic. So, now, I wouldn't ask everybody this question, Gabir, but it seems like a sensible question to ask you. Have you ever seen a rocket launch then? <laughs> oh yes. Um, well, in uh, as part of this research for the Indian Space Program, uh, I went to uh, India three times, and on the very first, uh, and I was there for a while, and on a med shore, I uh, made a trip to um, the uh, spaceport or the launch site, the sort of Cape Canaveral of India. It's called Sri Harikota. And it's on the eastern coast of India, about 100 uh, kilometers uh, away from Chennai. And I went there each time. And on the first time, there was a launch and I was there, but it had to be aborted. There was a few leaks, so I didn't get to see it. Second time I went, I did see a launch, and it was a navigational satellite, which was really terrific. And the third time I went there, there was no launch, and I scheduled it for that reason, so that I could have a tour of the launch site, which is not something they would do when a, fuel, a fully fueled rocket is uh, ready to launch. I am so envious of you because uh, I, 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 like you, have, when I was younger, I was really interested in what was going on in space. And I remember skiving off school to go and watch the shuttles go up, um, you know, in the air because it was just quite remarkable. And one of my personal ambitions is to see a launch from Cape Canaveral. I'd lo- I would love to see that. It's just such an iconic image. Is it as good as it looks on the telly? Well, the amazing thing is it's a sound. 
Um, although these days I think there are some headphones you can get and with appropriate recording uh, you can actually get a sensation but the sensation of a launch is maybe it's because I've seen so many on the, on the screen is the actual sound and even though you are at least five kilometers away it's still a very loud uh, sound and very rumbling and you can actually sense it in your chest and this uh, most recent launch I saw was not a particularly large rocket the larger rockets are in measurably much uh, more sensational in every sense one of the things that I, I, I didn't fly until later in life because we could never afford it when I was a kid. But one of the things I love, I love about flying is when you take off and you get that sudden burst of speed. I always reckon that for mere mortals, that's probably the closest we'll ever get to rocket travel. I love it. Have you, have you, have you ever been in anything faster? No, no, just uh, commercial airline and, of course, uh, light aircraft. They only do about 130, 140 knots at best. Yeah, so we could just close our eyes and pretend we're Flash Gordon when the planes take off. But it, it's it's funny, isn't it? It's I loved it for the first time I did it, and I still love planes taking off. I think it's an amazing um, experience. You know, when the engines roar and you get that thrust, and I think that must be something like this when you're taking off um, in a rocket. Have you ever been near a simulator or anything like that for your books? Uh, yes, the, the um, various simulators indeed. Um, I've had uh, uh, years ago when these uh, simulators became popular for PCs, but no, they're, they're uh, not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you see, all these questions, it would be really stupid to ask anybody else. You're telling me, yeah, you're answering yes to all of them so far, <laughs> which is great. Uh, I'm not going to ask you if you've ever held a ray gun uh, or anything like that, don't worry, but um, they'll just, they're just be rocket-related questions. Now, <laughs> So you've given us a hint of where your first book came from. So it was inspired in 2010 and, and published in 2011. Now, um, I, I know you've come from an academic background, so you're kind of used to writing and, and doing long essays, dissertations, that kind of thing. But but the leap to writing a book is not necessarily a natural one. So was it the first time you'd ever written something sort of that long, that ambitious with the first book? Absolutely. And uh, it, it evolved uh, naturally. I didn't plan it in the sense that uh, I, I've never really wanted to be an author. And I still, in many ways, don't regard myself as one. Uh, although, uh, clearly, I've written two books, got my name on it. That, that was never been my motivation. It was just the, the end product that, uh, because it didn't exist, I felt that I should create it. Now, interestingly, when you were writing this 2010-2011, the self-publishing landscape was not as developed as it is now. So at that time, what did it look like to you? Was it a Word document at the time and, and seeing where it went from from there? I tell you, Paul, I, I really didn't know what I was doing in terms of uh, trying to publish something. All I wanted to do initially was to do the research and put it into some sort of a format that would be um, legible to others. And as it evolved, um, I meant to see Reg Turnal, I mentioned. There was another guy, um, a well-known World War II pilot called Eric Winkle. Brown, who um, happened to be the only person that Yuri Gagarin met on a one-to-one -one basis 
although uh, because of language differences, they had interpreters as well there. Um, and when I'm making this effort to meet up with people who had a connection to the story and could um, enrich it, I felt that I should put it to uh, put some more effort in making sure it is something that uh, could be a book. But I, I was self-publishing, but I had no idea that I was self-publishing. And the only reason I published myself is because uh, traditional publishers, and I guess it's still tr- true today, but at that time, uh, the idea of turning around a book in a year would have been uh, impossible. So I approached a few. It's a very niche kind of subject anyway, but they said that, you know, they'd take about a year or two, and I was very keen to get it out for the uh, 50th anniversary, which would be July 19, uh, in 2011. When you take a look at the book, you know, you've really applied academic rigour here. So we've got, uh, you know, everything that we would expect. We've got timelines. We've got a full bibliography, uh, a very, very uh, detailed index. Now, I I know this because I kind of half-arsed this on one of my books. It's quite hard to just make a, a detailed index like that. It doesn't. It's, you don't just knock it up overnight. It's something that takes um, a long time. So this really is did, – did you do all of that? Because there's, there's a lot of work in that. <laughs> well, on the very first book, the index, my wife – uh, was delegated to that, and she put that uh, together. It's all done on Microsoft Word. And uh, in the second book, uh, again, that's the only reason I had to turn to Microsoft Word. Otherwise, uh, Vellum, which I know you're a fan of, would have been uh, something I could use. But Vellum doesn't handle tables, images, references, and indeed index very well. So, yes, that is uh, a bit cumbersome and long-winded. Now, you have used photographs in this book, and you're into, you know, acknowledgements, you're into copyright, you've got all sorts of nasties lurking away there. How, how did you deal uh, with those issues? Uh, well, every uh, image uh, has a, um, somebody I credit to, and um, it's something, again, I didn't really know what I was doing, so I knew that that's... If I'm going to use an image, unless it's one of my own, I have to get permission from the uh, image owner. And in most cases, the people that I saw mentioned Eric Winkle Brown and Reg Turnell. Uh, in fact, one of the images in that book is from Margaret Turnell, Reg, Reg's wife. And generally speaking, when you make that one-to-one contact with people and you see some images and ask, they're usually very willing. So it was uh, really not too much of a problem in the in the first book. And because you were using Word, did you have any, um, you know, I know that actually putting images in books could be uh, a struggle in itself sometimes, wrapping it around the text correctly and things like that. Did you have any issues with that with Word or was it fairly straightforward? I made the decision early on that there would be no um, wrapping as such. Uh, it's something which uh, just sticks in the middle of the page, near the top or near the bottom, with a caption underneath, and that allowed me to have a fairly large image. I'm quite keen that <laughs> I don't have um, small images in top left-hand corner, uh, because these books are quite small anyway, you know, five by nine at the, the largest size. So, um, no, I particularly, I, I chose a f- an approach at the outset, with, which made sure that I, it wouldn't be too complex a thing as far as the images were concerned. And how was this book uh, written, Gerber? Was it, was it um, sort of fitted around a job? Did you set yourself targets? Um, how, how did it emerge in the end? <laughs> 
I can ask, I imagine why you're asking that because you are so organized. <laughs> I, am, I am exactly the opposite. Um, I, I have a, a day job, uh, family life and other things I do. So um, although the first book, um, the Gagarin book, took about a year, but that was simply because I was working to a timeline of the 50th anniversary, um, and it's quite a sh- small book, um, I just do what I can at the pace that I can, and it's, uh, uh, although I have set targets for when I'd like to get these things done by, if I don't get them done by that target, then the target just gets pushed, and it's just a matter of doing what I can to the quality I want to get done, um, and until it's done, I don't move on. That's why my second book took me almost six years. <laughs> I've, I've seen the size of it, so I, that's understandable. It's huge. I couldn't believe how, how big that book was. <laughs> so with this first book, uh, you know, bearing in mind we're 2010, 2011, and it's not quite as easy as it is nowadays, when, when you'd written the book and you were happy with it, what did publication look like? for you did you did you go the traditional route at all or were you straight to self-publish i think i made some inquiries but the publishers were saying that they just could not print uh, publish something within the time scale i was working to so uh and, and this is well before i was aware of create space or amazon uh, or moby or uh, EPUB files. Uh, all I did was created the, um, the Word document, made sure, it, and I did all that myself, the formatting. It's, it's just a Word document at the end of the day. Um, and I didn't actually involve any third parties, like there's no graphic designers or book formatters, which was the case in the second book. But in the first book, I just produced the end product, uh, created a PDF, and then I found a printer in uh, in New York, in uh, in the UK, and uh, they said, oh, "Okay, uh, send us the PDF uh, and the image you'd like to see for the for the cover, and we'll take it from there." And they printed, uh, I can't remember how many copies, but uh, not many, not very many, and. That was it. There weren't any e-books of that book until uh, late last year when I <laughs> created an electronic version. Oh, fantastic. So it was actually, that was what, what I tend to call self-publishing version one, which is, um, well, a, a lot of people used to end up with 5,000 copies in the garage, didn't they? That, that sort of version of it. But you, you had fewer by the sounds of it. <laughs> yes, I was given really good advice by the printers uh, because they were familiar with um, people with a great deal of gusto and uh, appreciation of the of their own work, uh, they said, "Look, we can print you a thousand copies or whatever you want." But I think I only got about three hundred, so it wasn't, it wasn't even five hundred. And um, it's taken. Uh, it's it's not a bestseller, um, although now I'm selling some e-books. Um, but um, it, it was fortunately they advised me not to print too many, and I didn't. And I think I'll just have a few left lying around somewhere in, uh, at home. Brilliant. Well, that, of course, brings us to the dreaded M word, which is not Ming the Merciless. It's, it's actually marketing. Um, how, when you've got those 300 books, how do you, how do you market them? Well, again, um, the, my approach has never been to be a writer to generate an income. That was never my goal. And uh, as such, it's great, you know, if people are interested in reading and giving you feedback on your book. Um, 
It was never something that uh, I would make a living at. Uh, so I really didn't do any marketing. The printers offered me a package to do some marketing, but um, this is back in 2011. Uh, I think I stayed uh, suggested that um, they, they had a year-long plan, but they didn't have anything shorter, so I didn't go with that. So the answer to your question is there was no marketing. <laughs> Well, I know the feeling, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, so, but you see, what strikes me about the kind of books that you're writing is this is beautiful territory for doing talks in libraries and selling copies in libraries or doing a little lecture circuit, you know, around a university or a college. It's, it's perfect material for that. Did you, did you ever give that a try? Indeed. And in fact, uh, that's, you, you, you're spot on. Uh, I did get a lot of calls from local uh, astronomical societies, uh, local history societies, um, and I did go along and did give a talk and did sell some books and thoroughly enjoyed it. That's the kind of thing that uh, I'd uh, expected would happen and I uh, still enjoy that kind of uh, event. Uh, on the second book, uh, I did actually have a book launch and did something similar, but I did put some effort when it comes to marketing for the second book. I think um, we'll get to the second book in a moment, but I think your model is really interesting because we talk so much on this podcast about making your money, making a living, um, you know, actually um, replacing your income. But it strikes me that you've got your writing about something you're passionate about. So it's a busman's holiday to a certain extent. And then actually talking about that and then selling the books, not in vast numbers, but in enough numbers not to have 5,000 stuck in your garage, um, you know, actually is, is what you want. And actually, it's a, it's a great way of doing it. It's like, it's, it's like a, um, a self-fueling hobby, if you want. Yes. And, and my target... Uh, my goal is very different um, in the sense that uh, I don't really have one other than pursue my my hobby. And you're spot on. It's, it is just, um, I suppose in some circles, uh, some people would uh, in the past would re- refer to this as sort of um, vanity publishing. Yes. So, some people would consider um, vanity publishing in a derogatory sense, but in a, in a way that applies to me, I think. I set out to publish in this way uh, just to satisfy my own personal curiosity, um, never uh, an intention to make a lot of money or indeed uh, any other big success in any way, hence no real marketing. Well, I've got a more flattering name for it because I, I, I actually don't think yours is vanity publishing. I call yours expert positioning, um, where you've got a book which enables you to uh, communicate and spread your kind of academic message more. Um, and, uh, you know, anybody who's, who's teaching something or, or lecturing about something, a book is always fantastic to be able to sell at the end. Um, and so I, I wouldn't put you in vanity publishing. I think vanity publishing is kind of where you write your life story and you publish it and no one ever reads it except the family. I think you've, you know, I don't think I wouldn't put you in vanity. I'd put you expert positioning, I think, uh, particularly with your lecturing background as well. Well, I certainly like the title, uh, Expert Positioning. <laughs> it's a wonderful <laughs> title. I'd go with that good bit But, but yeah, okay, I, I hadn't really appreciated uh, the vanity publishing aspect uh, from what you're saying is more appropriate when the subject of the writing is the writer, him or herself. But that's still, yeah, that's never been the case in, in, in my, in, in my uh, position. 
Yeah, or, or academic publishing. You know, I could see this being, um, these could be academic texts, couldn't they, that people um, study and refer to as well and cite in their own essays. So uh, they're, they're certainly academic works. Um, the way the, the way you've, you know, got your citations in there and everything like that, it's like a, they're like a dissertation. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're properly academic works, I would say. So no, I think vanity publishing is diminishing what you've done. That's all. So I, I, we need to find something better than that, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, irrespective of what you call it, it is something that I set out to do. And I, for my own personal little goal, I think I was successful in it. But I think also, you're right, it is um, some body of work, some uh, an end product, which given that many of the individuals that I met in writing the Gagarin book are sadly no longer around. So had I not gone up to them and recorded their experiences, those experiences would be lost. So it's a good part, uh, good, I, I suppose, is a contribution to the, a little bit of history on the Gagarin, very complex Gagarin story. Now, you and I have been chatting online for a while, and I've, I've met you at events. And it wasn't until I, I, I saw you at 20 Books, and you're so modest with all of this, that I saw you clutching your um, Indian Space Program book. And, th- and this thing's, it's huge. It's about the size of a breeze block, for goodness sake. And and, and, and you're, you make very light of your writing efforts. And when I saw this thing, I said, you, you've got to come on the podcast now, because you know, this is such an impressive uh, work uh, that you've done. This is a second impressive work. Um, where did this one come from, Gabir? Because this really is, this is 570 pages long. This is no something that you knock off over the weekend. It's a, a, a real commitment. It's funny that uh, when I was at uh, 20 Books, I, I did show this to Michael Anderley. And I remember your interview with him. There was a reference to a minimal viable product and, and I took this book up to Michael and I said well here's my minimal viable product <laughs> and uh, so he uh, raised his eyebrows um, no again um, it, it came about because it's the kind of uh, book that I was looking for to read and it didn't exist and I think the um, Indian space program um, the more you look more I looked into it the more surprising I found uh, uh, the story was behind it. And of course, right now, um, although people don't realize it, perhaps other than satellite television, our modern lives are so much regulated by uh, space-based assets, whether it's weather forecasting, communication, satellite navigation, the GPS that we have in our cars and our phones, and indeed search and rescue services, which uh, um, are things that are usually people who sail, fly, or go on adventure holidays, and they can take a little small handset with them, which has a beacon that can communicate with a satellite and alert emergency services should it be necessary. Um, the modern lifestyle that we've uh, uh, come to uh, rely on, they're so heavily dependent on space. And I was very keen to understand why India had chosen to develop a space program, given all the other difficulties that they have to address. And the story of India going into the space program about a decade and a half after independence, when 
at the time when they launched their very first rocket, there was a, there were more bullock carts on the roads in India than cars, and it was just a, a fascinating story that India should make that decision. And of course, uh, subsequently, those decisions way back in 1963 have shown to be the right decisions because India is now uh, developing nation growing economy and to large part because of his space program and i just wanted to understand how that uh, had arisen so you were born in india but you've lived in the uk since 1966 do you still have um, strong family connections in india not really um because i was quite young when i came uh, all my friends i must have had some childhood friends i've lost contact with them and we all came as a as a family so mum and dad and all the kids and when we settled here um we did i didn't go back to visit my family my parents uh, or any of the siblings so i didn't actually go back until 1992 for the first time and of course by then everything is pretty much strange and alien to you because you don't have any personal connections although of course my parents uh through my parents i have lots of relatives who probably knew me better than i know them it's interesting what you said about the contrast in India, because I can remember, uh, I've never been to India, I'd love to go to India, and uh, my experience of it is through the television. I remember watching a, uh, an Indian film once, and it was set um, among the uh, sort of the elite, the, the very rich people in India. And I, I said to my wife, you know, that's, we never see that on television, we never see that side of Indian life, yet it must exist. And we see, um, you know, cows walking on, on muddy roads and things like that. And we hear about, you know, people not having um, often basic sanitation. That's the image we get of India. And it's interesting that you've picked up with that in your book, too, that, you know, it's such a contrast. We've got this space program at great expense. And then we've got people who haven't got a toilet uh, plumbed in. It's, it's an amazing country, isn't it? Yeah, and I, one of the um, on, my, on one of my research trips, I visited a guy called Rakesh Sharma. He was uh, the very first Indian to go into space. He spent a week in uh, uh, one of the Soviet space stations in 1984. And during that interview, I you know, addressed this question, which I did with many others as well. I said, you know, how come uh, India is such a poor country? Why should we? be considering India, uh, why should it be appropriate for India to have a space program? And he said, well, India isn't a poor country. It's actually a rich country, and it's just the way that the wealth is distributed. And, you know, he's quite right. It's the uh, very small elite who have the wealth, incredible amount of corruption, and it's, uh, it's sad. But um, um, India has more billionaires than than the UK has. It's a lot of wealth out there and it's one of the largest importers of gold, for example. So it's not, although we associate poverty with India, it's not a really a poor country. That, that's fascinating. And uh, something else you said there, you, you, you said you did a number of interviews for this book. H how much then is this a, a work of journalism now um, with, with all those interviews? Well, it's interesting the way you break it down. Being an ex-journalist, you you can see that. To me, I, I've never drawn that distinction. I wanted to learn about the um, human spaceflight program in India, and the natural place to start was to interview the <laughs> only Indian who's been to space. Um, the there have been other 
astronauts of Indian descent, but the only Indian to go into space was uh, Rakesh Sharma. I don't draw that distinction. I just went to answer the questions uh, or chase the uh, questions that I found intriguing and one of them was uh, you know how was it that he managed to get into space why there haven't been other Indian uh, astronauts and what's the prospect of uh, India having a, a human space flight program they don't at the moment and likewise with other people I met um, there was uh, uh, individuals who uh, were involved with the building up of the initial stages right at the outset, uh, getting the program off the ground. Now, those individuals, uh, a guy called Vikram Sarabhai and Homi Baba, they're not around anymore. Um, so I, in order to understand their lives and their motivations, I, in Vikram Sarabhai's case, I spoke to his widow, who was uh, around. She's not around anymore now. And the people who met him, knew him, and worked for him. So it was just a way of understanding the key characters in my story. Uh, and if it's not directly possible to speak to them, then through the people who had met him. This is some uh, work, Gabir. It's it's huge, over well over 500 pages, almost 600 pages. Um, an academic work, I've referred to it also as a journalistic work. How do you sew something like this together? It's very different from the sort of fiction that I'm writing and even, even the non-fiction that I write. I mean, it strikes me that you must have pieces of paper all over the place and then somehow you've got to pull this thing together. Yeah, the pieces of paper all over the place is a spreadsheet, <laughs> which has many tabs on it now, and it's grown since the outset, uh, where I keep all the references and information. And indeed, you mentioned that it's got over a thousand references, um, and I've got them at the end. But that wasn't because it would be a good piece uh, of uh, contribution to the book, but it's mainly because writing something over such a long period of time, I needed to keep tabs <laughs> where I was getting the information so I could go back to it again. Um, and, and it is something that takes a, a, a long time. Fortunately, in this case, each chapter is pretty much standalone. So I was able to, um, for each chapter initially, have a, a separate file for each one. And of course, we on Scrivener, that's quite straightforward and juggling things around. But it, it is uh, um, email um, using the um, spreadsheets and Word documents and multiple um, tables uh, and uh, image folders and so on. It's just something that you have to build over time and then construct and shape and hammer into place near near the end. Now, my, my memory of you holding this book from 20 books is that it was hardback. What, is it hardback or is it a paperback? Uh, both. Uh, I've got hardback, paperback and e-books in, in all versions as well. How did you get a hardback done, Gabriel? I've never done a hardback. Ingram Sparks. Oh, really? Yeah, just as simple as that. Yep. You just, uh, when you're ordering, uh, you just select what kind of uh, uh, format you want. Um, yeah. And it's really, apparently, um, from the, quali um, the quality that uh, I've had comments on, uh, it's really good. I'm very, very happy and pleased with it. Brilliant. So um, you said when you did the first book, you weren't even aware of Create Space. Did, did you ever put or think of putting this through Create Space? Or did it just go straight through Ingram Spark? 
no. Um, so in, in this second book, it went initially to create space. And um, so, in fact, when it was launched, yeah, I hadn't, didn't have uh, create space, uh, sorry, um, English Park uh, account. I set that up later and primarily um, only <laughs> just so that I could get a hard, hard co- hardback version as well. Uh, and of course, the England's Park has a different distribution model as well, but uh, it's primarily because you can get a hardback from Ingram that I went to Ingram as well after I printed it initially on uh, CreateSpace. Now, now, interesting, this, this book is priced at £45 on um Amazon, uh, as an academic book would be as well. That's what people pay for academic books. Um, so is that what you have to price it at to cover the costs of it? Because I know that uh, books, you know, that have images in something that's 600 pages long and a hardback that, that, that it costs a lot actually to produce the thing in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I was very keen to produce uh, a high-quality piece of work because as it got near the end, I could see how much work there was. And uh, one of the key contributors um, in all this was my editor. In fact, I had two editors. And the initial editor, she didn't really do a good job. And um, so the editing costs were really quite high, but only because uh, after the first attempt, which covered about 75% of the book, I went somewhere else and the second editor of course had to re-edit everything and so editing costs were quite high I ended up buying uh, my editor was a lady called Lisa Joseph who is based in Bangalore and uh, she's really the key person uh, other than me writing it in producing the end product in its final form and she not only helps with the uh, initial um, copy ed- developmental editing, copy editing, and proofreading. She did the fact checking. She did the help with the currency conversions because although uh, I was talking about in, uh, when I was hopping around in different countries, you use different currencies. In the end, I settled for U.S. dollars and Indian rupees, and she went through and made sure that all these um, currencies were consistent. And of course. Going back to about fifty years uh, in time as well as in geographical terms as well. I'm interested to know what the twenty books crowd made of your book because this is like something that twenty books has never ever seen before. It's uh, did they know how to handle it and, and what to do with it? No, I didn't really get uh, um, too much in the way of feedback. Although there were, you know, most people who had looked at it made some nice comments. Um, but it is. Uh, I think uh, in, at 20 books, apart from the fact that it was uh, uh, a great publishing event, uh, I think it was, as indeed self-publishing um, environment tends to be a non-fiction environment. Maybe uh, you see that differently. I don't know. Yeah, well, it's. I think that your book, you see, I would, this is natural for a lecture program to be. So if you were asking me about marketing, I'd say this is a university of the third age. It's a university lecture circuit. You know, it's an intelligent, it's an intelligent audience. You could lecture to students, astronomy groups and things like that. You know, to me, you've got a job for life on this book. Well, that's certainly true. I have already written pieces uh, associated with this book uh, for a German pub- publication that's coming out soon. Uh, I've had, uh, indeed, I've had a, a request for an interview 
today, uh, and I'm also doing um, a couple of uh, talks scheduled for later. Well, in fact, two talks scheduled for next year, and also uh, a much more of a, a, a written piece presentation uh, as well as uh, um, standard uh, talk in in London uh, later on uh, next no, month after. I see. So this is expert positioning. This is what I say. So you do the talk and then you sell the books at the, at, at the talk. And, and presumably you're, you're quite happy with that. I mean, that sounds like it suits your interests and your aspirations. Absolutely. And this is just uh, what I expected. And I'm, I'm, I'm very happy, very pleased with, with where I am. Um, I did do a, um, a book launch event and it was quite interesting. I absolutely petrified when I set it up. I thought, you know, what if nobody shows up? But uh, in the end, we had about 30 people. Uh, I th- was going to speak for about half an hour. In the end, people just kept asking me questions. I was there for an hour. And then after that, people still stayed around. And it was the first time I felt some sort of uh, validation that, you know, um, I hadn't screwed up. I hadn't messed up. And uh, people's comments, as indeed the reviews so far on Amazon have all been very, very positive. No, oh, I'm dead chuffy. I mean, I, I think that's a fantastic story. I, I wouldn't dare do something like that. It takes a real leap of faith to have an author event like that. And, and we do, we'd all just wonder about, uh, you know, a man turning up with his dog and then finding out he's come to the wrong place. And so 30 is fantastic. What an experience. <laughs> yes. And the, um, because I did do a, a press release when it was launched, um, I did get uh, queries from different parts of the world. There's uh, actually, I've, I've got a book review. Uh, in, uh, in an Israeli defense uh, review. Uh, unfortunately, the review is in, uh, is, is in Hebrew, so I <laughs> what it says. So hopefully I get that translated. But it's interesting to see that I'm actually making some sales in Japan. Um, and I have no idea who these individuals are. But when you put something out there, and that's the key thing I've learned, listening to people like you, in addition um, to, as, as other experienced writers, and I put you down as a very experienced writer, in addition to putting all the effort in, you've really got to make sure that you've got a good quality product and that you do publish. It's very easy when I'm writing uh, to go on and keep tweaking it here and there. And uh, I think uh, you have a term, Paul, uh, good to go or good to ship. Mm. And I really took that on board because it's very easy to stretch that six years into another year because I could make it a little bit better. But uh, uh, I did get to a point where I drew the line and I was worried at that time. But subsequently, with all the feedback I've had, I think I made the right decision. So thank you. For, uh, for all your support in, in this project. Well, congratulations to you. I mean, you've, you've done an amazing amount of work. Just, just a thought while you were mentioning it, um, because I've had experience with this. I, I once had some adverts done for the secret bunker and I got them done on Fiverr in Chinese. So if you go to Fiverr, you'll probably be able to get that review, um, translated in, in, from, from Hebrew, um, uh, you know, for five dollars. Um, so, so do, do check it out. Don't feel like, you know, you've got to go, elsewhere uh, Fiverr will probably do it for you and you'll be able to find out what they say and and, and, and quote it in the English <laughs> well I've never thought of that you see that's brilliant thank you very much for that tip <laughs> well, uh, there you go see I'm full of bright ideas me. <laughs> so what, what I'm interested to hear though is uh, you know having sort of found a wonderful niche 
And this is such an interesting story for the podcast, because as I say, I spent so much time talking to people who are trying to make a living out of it. And I just think you found you've carved yourself a remarkable niche, which is based around your lifelong interest, you know, your your academic rigor, um, your ability to stand up and talk and, and deal with a, an audience like that. So I, I, I'm wondering, in many respects, you know, why you listen to people like me and go to 20 books to 50K, because you almost don't need it, really. No, I think these um, modern day um, publishing industry uh, is very different to what it used to be five or six years ago. And I don't get the chance to attend many events. 20 books was a bit of an exception. Um, but I, in order to understand the publishing industry, people like your, you, Paul, and your podcast, uh, it really gives me a bigger picture on, you know, for example, when Vellum came out, and uh, got sure, it's not appropriate for me, but when you get new products, uh, Fiverr you mentioned just now, um, uh, Scrivener, I, I think I heard uh, you mention, although uh, you don't perhaps use it as much, uh, Juto, you know, this HTML editor. Uh, so I, I came across that from hearing uh, on one of your episodes and also, you know, things like uh, Grammarly and Hemingway. These are products which I ended up using as part of the, uh, the my journey. And I uh, came across those tips from listening to you. Crikey, I'm to blame to all, for all sorts of stuff. I, <laughs> <laughs> I shall expect a legal case at some point. Then, be. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say a percentage. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of that one. Yeah. <laughs> but look, you, you've done brilliantly. Uh, let me tell you, you're far too modest. Um, you, you really, uh, you really need to sort of be proud of this because it's a great achievement. Where, where, where are you heading next with this? Is this the pièce de résistance, this this uh, book, or is there more in you? Uh, I think uh, I uh, now that I understand the, the whole writing cycle, um, I, I will probably write more. But currently, I just have talks and papers uh, in the pipeline. Uh, there is a, another idea which is on the back burner, but uh, there's nothing formal that I'm working on uh, as in, in the way of next book at the moment. Fantastic. So what I, we need to finish off by finding out where we could learn more about you. And I love the title of your website. So you've got to get this in if you would, please. I love your your brand for the website. So could you just uh, advise us on the best places to find out about you? And also, by the way, you give these books away for free on BookFunnel. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So if anybody is interested in providing a review, um, and let me know. Uh, drop me an email and I'll send, uh, send you a link where you can download these. Um, I've uh, had a, a website and it's very easy to remember. There's only one dot in this. It's called astrotalkuk.org. And it's a website I set up uh, about 10 years ago now. And I have my own podcast there, which has been a little bit on the back burners for a while, but I'm re-initiating that. Uh, I've uh, recorded a couple of episodes which I'm going to be editing so it's really odd to be on this side of the, the questions Paul um, but um, astrotalkuk.org is the website at Gurbir Singh is my Twitter handle. I'm really interested to hear that you mentioned a podcast there Gurbir it's nice to see you joining the family as far as that's concerned. Um, how can we pick up on this because if, we, if we're interested in space we want to get a hold of this 
Well, uh, I've uh, uh, got a date for a restart, which is on the 1st of May, and I've got three episodes in the can. There's a guy talking about commercial off-the-shelf products that uh, are used in spacecraft. So the old idea of developing something just for space and takes a lot of time and money is no longer the case. You just can buy it from shops pretty much and see uh, and, and launch it into space. I've also got the guy, a former missile, uh, nuclear-tipped missile uh, launch officer from the U.S. Army. He now works for an organization called the Secure World Foundation, and he talks about space debris or space situational awareness. And I've also got a guy who's uh, a, a, an academic, I guess, uh, from Caltech, the California's Institute of Technology, talking about the upcoming Chinese mission to the moon, which is landing a lander and a rover on the far side of the moon for the very first time. That all kicks off on the 1st of May this year. That's fantastic, Gabriel. Congratulations once again, and thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Paul, thank you very much. I really appreciate all the effort you do uh, put into developing this community and i've really benefited from it uh, in many ways thanks a heap thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys if you enjoyed the show please consider sharing it with your indie author friends or you can leave a review on itunes stitcher or whichever podcast directory you use in the meantime you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com thanks again for listening We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.